Welcome. You're listening to Sanseet, where you'll find everything to do with spirituality, life lessons, holistic living, and medicine to become your true self. We all have stories, journeys, experiences, and love. Here's your host, Erin O'Dowd. Hello and welcome on today's show. Our guest is a chiropractor, a forward-thinking healer with a PhD in health evidence healthcare. She has done case studies in muscle testing at the University of Oxford, and she developed a healing system called HeartSpeak. I'd like to welcome Dr. Anne Jensen to the show. Thank you, Anne. Nice to be here. Tell us about how you got into chiropractic care. Wow, that was um, a while ago now. I was interested in, in health care, and I was on track to become a medical doctor, go to medical school. I grew up in New York in, in America. And then I, I was a swimmer as well, an athlete, and I was injured. And I, as a result, I had surgery on my shoulder. And through that process, I realized that the medicine part really didn't resonate with me while the healthcare part did. So then I looked around for other things I could do is to be a healthcare provider and uh, chiropractic really spoke to me. So I began to study chiropractic. What did chiropractic teach you? It opened my mind for sure. It taught me that there are other ways to look at things and we are more powerful than we give ourselves credit for. And doctors give ourselves credit for. I believe that we have the capacity to heal ourselves more than we ever thought. That opened my mind a lot through chiropractic. And when it opened your mind, was it more with the uh, mechanical adjustments of the spine or was it something else? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I, Of course, I was a chiropractor, so I did a lot of mechanical adjusting, but I found more, more of an interest, more I could help people more when I did more energetic work. So yes, while I did the actual adjustments, I also did quite a lot of muscle testing in practice. When I, when I graduated from New York Chiropractic College, I went across to Australia and I practiced in North Queensland for 11 years. And I had an opportunity to take all, all kinds of techniques and courses that weren't directly adjusting the spine but we're making definite changes in people's bodies mind bodies really while i started off more mechanistic i found myself more drawn toward the energetic um healing processes that i i discovered along the way and now i love it i'm passionate about moving energy living in australia what therapies and modalities did you learn well i started off using techniques like sacro-occipital technique, SOT, and I also learned activator and applied kinesiology. I was introduced to mind-body healing through NET, neuro-emotional technique, and I also learned total body modification, some cranial work, other cranial work, and all, all these are very, very subtle, very, they're all about energy and moving energy. I think I was also introduced to Psyche, so I learned Psyche when I was in England. I've never come across some of these therapies. Can you explain what they are? Oh, okay. Well, uh, SOT is a sacro-occipital technique. It works on the, the idea that the, the sacrum, which is the lowest, most part of the spine, um, must be 
balanced and free, freely moving, and balanced in relation to the skull, to the bottom part of the skull. If that's true, everything in between will function better as well. So we spend a lot of time working on the pelvis and the sacrum and the skull. And, 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 you know, the bits in between as well, but mainly that. Um, what else? We had applied kinesiology. Well, that's the grandfather of muscle testing techniques. That was originated by George Goodhart. As a chiropractor, he, he learned to muscle test like we all learned to muscle test. We muscle tested for muscle strength to ascertain if the muscle was strong. But he noticed their muscles were weak when certain conditions of the body were present. For instance, the chest muscle, the pectoralis muscle, was weak when there was a heart problem. And the, the kidney problems, there was also a, a hip flexor problem, a, a psoas problem. So um, he began to investigate the correlation there, and that developed into a whole technique called applied kinesiology, which is a pretty amazing technique. Then there are others that, all these techniques sort of made me, had a really strong background to develop the heart speak technique, which you know, is what is what I do now. With the heart speak, is that a combination of everything you learned mixed together? Well, I wouldn't say it's a combination. I would say it's the end result of, because it really isn't anything like any of the other techniques I've learned. When I started studying at Oxford, I, you know, when you do a master's and a PhD at Oxford, you do a lot of reading. And fortunately, I had the opportunity to do a lot of reading. And I read a lot in all sorts of different fields mainly in the field of affective science, the science of feeling. And I realized that it was a, a field of psychology that was overlooked or put aside when the cognitive theories developed. Um, cognitive is more the, the thinking and the logical part and the, you know, figuring things out where the, the affective science is the science of feeling. HeartSpeak is based on many concepts within the field of affective science, also within the field of neuroscience, and also the sciences of uh, learning and memory. While we haven't done much research on, on HeartSpeak itself, it has a sound theoretical framework based on very, very strong science, and also very current and upcoming sciences, the things that we are just learning about memory, for instance. It's kind of ex an exciting place to be. When you say sciences, what, what kind of sciences developed into the heart speak? Well, neuroscience, science of the nervous system and, and the brain, and learning and memory goes along with that. Um, there's a lot of science behind how we learn, which is involved on in how our memory works. I'll give you an, should I give you an example? Yes, please. So we are just learning that when we recall a memory, we're not actually recalling the memory but we are recalling the last time we recall it. So whenever we recall something and we store it again, we can change it a bit. That's the, the key to, to hard speak is that when I ask people to recall a memory and we don't actually, it's, I should also explain that it's actually not a explicit memory, like a detailed memory. It's I ask people to recall feeling memories, like the feeling of uh, sadness, for instance. And then when you recall that feeling memory, that sadness, there's a window of opportunity that develops and where the memory becomes flexible. And then we have, there's an opportunity to change the feeling slightly before it's consolidated again, before it's stored again. So we use that paradigm that is actually just being written about in the science, in neuroscience. 
how can a, a memory be flexible and adjusted? Is it energy or is it something else that's making the, the memory be more relaxing for the client? I don't think it's an energy thing because it's, I'm, I'm getting this um, information from the neuroscience paper research articles. And we do know that when we evoke a memory, we don't even know how brief the window of opportunity is where the memory becomes flexible. But we do know that it happens. But we, you know, you, we see this in everyday life, too. Have you ever heard of memory hacking? I have, yes. You have. I know. It's a scary thing, isn't it? It is. Yeah. So memory hacking is when um, a prosecutor will hire a psychologist to, where they, where they like a, a suspect for a certain crime, and the suspect adamantly denies committing the crime, they'll send the memory hacker in, which is usually a psychologist of some kind, who will use psychological principles to alter the suspect's memory and continually ask them so you know are you sure about this and and then they, they become unsure and then in the end they will believe that they actually committed the crime and they may not have we don't do that in our speak but we can change an unhelpful feeling and we can we call it pivoting we can pivot it to a more helpful feeling so if you're you're experiencing a lot of sadness well, you don't even have to know what it is in regards to, but if you're feeling a lot of a sadness or something, we can chip away at that memory or the, um, the tendency toward feeling that sadness and, to, and keep replacing it with a, a more beneficial feeling like a peace or a joy until the sadness, the tendency toward the sadness is diminished. And, and yeah, so it's, it's not that we change the memory per se, but it, it, we're changing the tendency toward a certain feeling or a certain behavior. Does that make sense? It, it does. How are you able to identify the emotion? Is it through muscle testing or is it just whatever presents in the client's energy field? Yeah, that's a great question. There's two ways we do it. Now, in the, in the, in the heart speak process, the full process, we use muscle testing to identify the feeling. And in heart speak, we use the traditional words for feelings, such as fear, anger, sadness. But we also use non-traditional words for feelings. For instance, a feeling of push or pull. And I can explain why we do that in a moment. But we, we use muscle testing to identify the most appropriate feeling to evoke to shift this the issue, the, the, the problematic issue. But there's also a process called heart speak light where... A person can, who doesn't muscle test, which is fine, you don't have to use muscle testing to use heart speak. You can just tweeze out a feeling that you identify, you know, one of the five feelings, fear, anger, sadness, disgust, and shame. You tweeze out that, you feel that until it's resolved, and then you pivot or replace it with a, a preferred feeling. So there's two ways to do it. There's the muscle testing way, which is usually done by a practitioner, and then the heart speak light way, which is just by observing your own your own feelings. With the muscle testing, how do you become aware of the muscle testing? Was it through kinesiology or was it something different? I was first introduced to muscle testing in chiropractic college. I went to New York Chiropractic College. I attended a club, the Applied Kinesiology Club, and we were introduced to how to do it. And I, But I can remember walking out of that club meeting saying, oh, I can't do this, it's, it's rubbish, I don't, you know, it's all just bollocks. But... <laughs> But then here I am, you know, 20, 25 years later, having a PhD in it. So, you know, if I had that start 
and now here I am, you know, with a PhD. And you know, I, I believe that anyone can learn how to muscle test. But then I was in I was in Australia, and I um, was encouraged to take another another course that uses muscle testing. So I dove back in, and I and I absolutely loved it then. So yeah, took a lot of courses in muscle testing. How can someone identify if they um, muscle testing or use it? It's really there's really simple. It's a really simple way to do it. I can give you a a way. It's not actually muscle testing, but it's a it's a self testing technique that anyone can can learn. Um, I'll give you two actually. They're both quite fun. Have you heard of the sway test? No. Yeah. Okay. So if you want to use the sway test, you you stand up on your own two feet and about hip width apart, not too wide but not too narrow, with your hands at your sides or or crossed in front of you. Say, for instance, you're you're wondering if you should, you know, what to have for lunch, for instance. So you could, you know, pick up, you know, have in mind, maybe I should go to McDonald's, right? And then you sit, stand, and see if you sway forward or backwards. We like to identify the forward sway as something that is true or beneficial, and the backward sway to something to stay away from. And so if you... the you know, you'd be surprised, you know, if you if you stand up and you think of eating, for example, at McDonald's, most of the time when I do this in a class, I have people do it, there's, they're falling over backwards, and then I, I ask people to, for instance, um, think of uh, drinking a Coke, a Coca-Cola, and they'll, again, you know, fall backwards, but then when I have someone think of drinking nice, cool, crisp, filtered water, uh, then there's usually a forward sway. So you can use the, the sway test to help make decisions like that. Um, but another one, this is a really good one. I'll, I'll let you try this, okay? Okay. Okay, so I'm going to get you to try this. Say in your mind, because, well, out, out, or out loud, it doesn't matter. Say my name is Aaron, and then swallow. And then compare it to my name is Petunia, and then swallow. Oh, there's a complete difference. You can feel it. What happened? It's like um, the swallow, when you say my name is Aaron, the swallow goes naturally. And then when you uh, don't do it, it, it kind of like someone's holding your, your swallow, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So we, we say that it's hard to swallow a lie. Yeah, so it, it, we know um, this is also a good way to get a good a reading on something. I use it, for instance, if I'm driving down the road and I don't know if I should turn right or left, and um, I'll just do a quick swallow test, and I'll turn to the to the way I can swallow. If 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 I can't swallow, if it gets caught, that's the way not to go. <laughs> and um, you can do it with with anything, like with you know ordering things on a menu at a restaurant, or oh, should I go out with this guy? I think your your mind body will get a sense of it, even though you know your your logical mind goes, "Oh my gosh, she's cute." But you know, give them a bit of a swallow test to see, to check in. There's a lot of ways you can use that. Yeah, it's a good technique. Um, while you were in Australia, did you eventually get to heal the injury that prevented you during your swimming career? Oh yes, actually, I worked and worked and worked on the issues that were causing the problem and I began swimming in Australia of course almost everyone swims in Australia because it's all waters especially in North Queensland or on the coast and uh, I began competitive swimming again I joined the, the Australian lifesavers and I can swim no worries now 
while you were in Australia, did you work as with athletes or was it just mainly patients that were in normal healthcare? Yeah, actually, in, in Australia, I was, uh, it's where I've got my um, sports chiropractic diploma. And I worked with anyone, first of all. But I did make a point of working with athletes. I volunteered with the local ball clubs, the rugby clubs, swimmers, lifesavers. Um, I even had an opportunity to work with some of our Olympic athletes, swimmer, a swimmer in particular. And that was quite exciting. And I worked with her on emotional issues leading up to one of the Olympics. And um, she actually performed really well. Yeah, it was kind of interesting. That was fun. Working with athletes, could you see the similar uh, comparison as a chiropractor than uh, that you would see in an individual that would be nor- in normal healthcare? I liked working with athletes, and especially yoga practitioners, yogis, because athletes and yogis are really in tune with their bodies and their minds. It's, if you get to a certain level, they responded really well to my approach, my approaches. So yeah, I quite enjoyed it. You wrote research papers while in Australia. What were they about? So I started doing all the uh, muscle testing techniques, and I was seeing some great, great results, great shifts in patients, and all that. And being sort of from a science background myself, I have my first degree is in mathematics. I wasn't sure if, if this was actually happening or if it's just something we think is happening. So I started doing some little research projects on my own in practice, and I was doing them with athletes, but I soon realized that I didn't know enough about research and was making a lot of mistakes in the research process. And that frustrated me because it it made it difficult to get things published and everything. So I started to look around at where I could learn um, how to do clinical research better. Oxford then popped up on the radar screen because within Oxford, there's the Center for Evidence-Based Medicine then they had a special program called the um, the evidence-based healthcare program. They both have a master's and a, a DPhil in it. And I applied, and then I got accepted. So I went. Yeah. So then I, I it got exposed to, had the opportunity to consult with, and then some of the top researchers in the world. I think that's what made my research so rigorous is that it had a lot of input by a lot of excellent people. How did it feel working in one of the best colleges in the world? Yeah, it was challenging at first. First of all, I don't really know how I got accepted. I think I just squeaked in under the radar. But at first, they pretty much ignored me. Then I started to get data, and the data was very impressive. So that's when I started when I I started getting the attention of some of the some of the researchers there, and that was just amazing because. They were so supportive, and they, they really didn't care they, about, you know, the politics. Because I was studying muscle testing. I was studying muscle testing at Oxford University. And that was difficult because that was kind of out of their paradigm. I was in a department with hardcore medical researchers. And so it was hard for them to actually embrace what I was doing. But to their credit, they were so supportive and so encouraging and... I couldn't have asked for a better experience there. It was amazing. You know, a lot of my um, colleagues in my department and and, uh, and other PhD students, DPhil students that I knew at Oxford, you know, they questioned, oh, I don't know if I'm doing the right thing. I don't know if I should be here doing this. Not one day during my whole Oxford experience did I did I question what if I was doing the right thing. It was it was incredible. Explain to us about the research paper you did in the University of Oxford. 
So I did a series of six research studies, um, all assessing the accuracy and precision of muscle testing. Now, muscle testing is a test, so we use the um, Diagnostic Test Accuracy Study Protocol from following the STARD statement, and we looked at if muscle testing could accurately detect a lie, a spoken lie, like you did with my name is Erin and my name is Petunia. Um, we didn't use those. We used statements about that the, the patient was told to say either a truth or a lie about a picture they were viewing on the computer screen. And then the muscle testing practitioner who couldn't see the picture would use muscle testing to determine if the statement was true or false. Now only the patient and we knew if the statement was true or false. The, the practitioner didn't. And the paradigm we were testing is that a true statement results in a strong muscle test and a false statement results in a weak muscle test. They did 40 to 60 muscle tests and we compared that to chance and the chance of guessing being true would be um, about 50%. But we also compared it to a guessing condition where instead of the muscle testing, the practitioner then had to use just intuitive guessing to guess whether the patient was speaking a true statement or a false statement. And we did that over six studies, changing specific variables in each. The first study was the main study, it was the biggest. I assessed 48 practitioners, 48 patients. The patients were naive to muscle testing. They had no prior muscle testing experience. And, and 48 practitioners who were trained in some kind of muscle testing. And then the results I got of that study were so encouraging and so, well, I'll tell you what the results were. The results were the guessing condition where the practitioner had to guess whether or not the patient was telling the truth or lying was 49.8% correct, which is roughly 50%, wow. which is about chance. And in the muscle testing accuracy, the muscle testing accuracy, the mean accuracy was 68, 69.8% correct, which is a 20% difference, which in statistics, it blew the statisticians in my department away. 20% difference between the two. You know, they thought I wasn't, wasn't going to find anything. In fact, one of my supervisors confided in me at my graduation that she only took me on as a supervisee because she didn't think it was going to work. And she wanted to be there when it happened. <laughs> so we, um, it was interesting. So but anyway, so after that first study came out, they wanted me to replicate it. So I didn't believe that I could, you know, got those results. So they asked me to replicate it. I replicated it and then did four more studies changing various things. So it's kind of exciting for muscle testing in the world at the moment. When you say muscle testing, is it just the throat or, you, or is it like through the, the arms, the hands, the feet? What other tests are you guys doing? In my research, I use the deltoid muscle, the shoulder muscle, where the arm is put out straight and then the practitioner then pushes down on the muscle, which is one of the most common ways that people muscle test out in the world. Um, there's other ways too, but we, we chose that one because it was one of the most common ways. Yeah, so we, I, in, the, in the end, I'm calling it muscle response testing. It's not testing for muscle strength. It's testing for the muscle response, you know, to stay strong or go weak. I know the muscle holds memory, but did you find that as well, working with through muscle testing? Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. I think memory is everywhere in the body, including the muscles, but we didn't go into that detail in the, in the research. We pretty much strictly just had practitioners test muscles of patients and we didn't get into memory although I'd like to you know get into some heart speak research in the next year or two that'll be interesting 
as a someone that had a PhD in evidential healthcare, did that also apply to HeartSpeak? No, I I wanted to do on my PhD. I wanted to do HeartSpeak with a group of people that were depressed, a big randomized trial. But in my first year, when I was demonstrating it in front of my department, they stopped me and said, "Wait, wait, wait, wait! What's this muscle testing business here? Is that proven? You can't." And in the nutshell, they asked me to show that muscle testing is a valid tool before they let me launch into a big randomized trial with HeartSpeak. Um, so I had to put the HeartSpeak study aside, and the muscle testing research took a life of its own. But one day, I will, for sure. Why did you not end up in maths instead of healthcare? The maths I took was maths of computation, which is, um, I learned a lot of programming and learned um, how to write a lot of uh, code and things like that to implement mathematical concepts. And I did that for a while. I worked at a department store, a big department store in Boston using uh, programming their cash registers to do, to do the payments and things, or take payments, whatever. But I found it really boring. I was stuck in a little room with no windows and all that, and it drove me nuts. So I, one thing led to another, and I looked into what I really wanted to do. So I chose chiropractic, and that you know that led me here. And as a chiropractor, how long did you have to do? Four years, six years, eight years, or? On New York Chiropractic College, you had to come in with about a year of prerequisites, but most people came in with um, a bachelor's degree. And then you, there was it was a three year program, three year three and one third years, so it was ten trimesters, just over three years. Doing the muscle testing and the chiropractic background, and when a person meets you in in person, can you identify what's wrong with them through how they look, or is it something different? Yeah, so yes, it's hard to switch off work mode. Um, I'm quite empathic; like I pick things up very, very easily. Especially when someone's not being completely true or being completely honest. Yeah, I can pick things up pretty pretty quickly. Mostly it's more toward, yeah, this is someone I want to spend time with or mm, this is someone I want to avoid. It's a challenge, actually, being in, quite empathic in the world today. And when you say empathic, like, can you pick up people's energy or feelings or explain that to us? I pick up people's feelings because I work with feelings all day now. And I know feelings, and um, I can pick up what someone is feeling if I focus on it. But the thing is, I don't know why they're feeling that. All I know is that they're feeling it. Like, for instance, I can feel when someone is a bit angry or hostile, and whether or not it's actually directed at me is, I don't know. All I know is that they're, they're angry. That probably frustrates you feeling the feeling, but not understanding the why. Yes. It sometimes does but i also learned over the years to trust that people are doing what they need to do to sort themselves out so if someone is is feeling angry or feeling scared i really learned as a practitioner not to take that on board that it is their that is they they they're feeling that for whatever reason and i'm you know, trusting that they will do what they need to do yeah, that must have took you a lot of practice and learning to identify what your emotion and their emotion is. Yeah, um, I do have a theory about that too, though, because there's a, there's a lot of processes out there, a lot of techniques out there that ask, you know, who does that feeling belong to? You know, is that my feeling or is that someone else's feeling? 
But in heart speak, what we say is that, well, first of all, in heart speak, we muscle test for stress. If stress is present, the muscle test will go weak. The muscle will go weak. And for instance, if, if you're feeling um, anger, for instance, and regardless if, if the anger is not originating from within you, if your muscle goes weak, it meaning, meaning it's causing you stress, then you have something to clear. Because I believe, now this is another theory, now we're getting into some interesting concepts. Now, you know how the moon, you know, during the full moon we just had, a lot of people um, I noticed were quite upset over the last week or so. Yeah. Yeah, so as humans, we're made of, of quite a lot of, of water, so we, I believe that the moon affects us some of us more than others, but now I believe that these feelings that get caught in our bodies are some kind of energy. Now, I'm not sure if energy is the right word, but I'm going to use it because I don't know what else to use because energy in physics is something specific, and I don't think it's the same the same as that physics energy. But anyway, for lack of a better word, I'm going to call it energy. So there's these knots of energies or these bundles of energies that are caught in our bodies. And... As the moon becomes full, these energies come to the surface and present themselves. So we feel more, we feel them more during the full moon. It is also my theory that with heart speak, we are making these energies smaller, you know, making the, you know, the detrimental ones, the, the harmful ones, smaller and smaller and smaller, so that they don't have a tendency to impact our health and well-being. And therefore, hopefully, like the moon and other influences don't don't have this big an impact. And and this goes in regards to what we were talking about with picking up other people's energies as well, other people's feelings. Because if you come in contact with someone who's having a bad day or having some kind of emotional upset, and we are affected by it, whether or not that we, we're actually aware of that, of where its origin is irrelevant, we're still affected by it. So because we're affected by it, it's our responsibility to deal with it. Theoretically, we should be able to feel any energy. And again, energy is probably not the right word, but it should come within our bodies and then out again. We should notice it if we need to, and if we don't need it, it just goes right through without interrupting us. That's my goal for that to happen. With that theory, do you think if an athlete gets a particular injury, do you think it's uh, through the muscle testing, do you think it's emotional that's caused that injury? A lot of times it, I find it is. But I also find that if it's related to what was going on just prior to the injury, like what the mental state of the athlete was, was just prior. It wasn't something was going on a lot of times. And I can, through the muscle testing, I can de detect that so it doesn't recur. When you're working with the Australian rugby team, as you mentioned, when they get injuries in the middle of the game, do you think that was emotion through muscle tests, like through the muscles that was presenting this injury? Of course, there could be all sorts of different factors. But, you know, if someone is tackled, you know, and breaks a rib, that clearly is a physical cause of the injury. But if someone, if an athlete's just running down the, the field and then sprains an ankle, he's run down the field a hundred times, why then did he sprain his ankle? That, I think, is really more, it could be related to an emotion or uh, some sort of uh, mind-body problem that needs to be looked at. I did a little interesting thing when I worked with the rugby union boys. I was assigned to working with the reserves, which, you know, the older guys, you know, the, yeah. almost the has-beens, you know. And I, 
adjusted every one of the reserved players except for one in this one particular game. And that was the only injury of the game was that one guy that wasn't adjusted, wasn't wow. cared for. It shows you the power of the spine. Yeah, yeah I, don't, I don't really think about it too much until, unless it's causing trouble. And who inspires you to do all this homework and research and muscle testing? I had a lot of mentors over the years. And if I look back, there were certain, definitely certain pivotal situations or pivotal people that changed the course of things. For instance, I have a, a one person I look up to. His name is uh, Dr. Joe Ledoux. He's a neuroscientist in, in New York University. And he's, uh, he wrote the book, The Emotional Brain. And he wrote the book, Anxious. And his, he's the fear expert, the world-renowned fear expert. And he's been in much of an influence on my work and how I think in my tendency toward looking at feelings from a conscious versus non-conscious perspective. Um, so that he was a big influence in my life. And of course, Bruce Lipton, you know, he, you know, biology of belief, cell, you know, cell memories and things like that and the cell membrane. And I had a chance to work with him when I was in New Zealand. Was a lovely man and and then dr mariel gatterman she's a chiropractic researcher she really encouraged me to take up research myself so yeah there's a there's a few heavy hitters in my background i also do have to say that i've always had this inner knowing that i just knew i had to do something for instance when i was graduating from chiropractic college i had to go to australia it was like I, I, I felt this compulsion, this drive. I, I couldn't not go to Australia. So when I we graduated, I found an associate position in Australia, and off I went to Australia, and I haven't, I haven't really looked back. And then it was the same thing with going to Oxford. I knew, I had this knowing that I just had to be there, and it wasn't something that I could ignore. And that's been, I was blessed with that knowing most much, much of my life. It's really served me well. Being able to work in three different continents, could you see a awareness towards holistic and chiropractic work? In different parts of the world, there are certainly different views of chiropractic. You know, chiropractic originated in America, but now I'm back in America. I've been here for almost a year now, living, and um, it makes me want to leave <laughs> how, how chiropractors are thought of, how chiropractors are treated here in America. In Australia, it's quite open. You know, there's a lot of people that seek out chiropractic care as a first port of call. In England, too, the people are very open, very open to chiropractic, and especially kinesiology and muscle testing. And in, in Ireland, too, I've, I've had an opportunity to work and to live in a bit, and um, a little bit more wary in Ireland, but, you know, they're on, you know, more holistic-oriented as well. And then when you say chiropractic work, is there various styles of chiropractic workers or just one borderline fits everything? Well, there's many chiropractic philosophies as there are chiropractors, I think. Now, look, take England, for example. England is a really good example of this. There are the, the chiropractors in England that um, are very mechanistic. They treat muscle, joints, problems, nerve problems, disc problems, ligaments and stuff. They're, they're very uh, pain-oriented and function oriented and then on the other hand there are the energetic type of chiropractors that you know will use the muscle testing will use the more the um esoteric techniques like these sot and the and the applied 
ecology and things. So it's like water and oil. They really don't mix well, which really doesn't bode well for chiropractors at all. They really should learn to work together. I mean, who's to say one thing doesn't work as, as well as the other? You know, research should show that. We really need to start working together. We're all sort of on the same team. I think we can do that. We progress a bit better. I see you, you wrote a book. Tell us about that. Well, I am, I've been asked to write a book. Yes, it's very exciting, actually. I've been asked, I've been approached by a publisher to write a book on my research at Oxford, and I'm taking the approach of it being a very practical book, but evidence-based. It'll be very clear about, okay, this is what we know about muscle testing. This is what we know it can be used for. This is what it is used for, but that we don't know that it can actually be used to do this. But even though we still will do it, research hasn't been done yet. So it will go over the, the evolution of muscle testing because I think it's very confusing because if you Google muscle testing, and of course I have, it seems like everything that is related to muscle testing or kinesiology is called applied kinesiology, but applied kinesiology is just one specific type of muscle testing technique. There's dozens and hundreds of others, actually. So we'll talk ex- explicitly about the different types of muscle testing. And in regard to the two main types of kinesiology style of muscle testing, there's um, there's the AK style, the applied kinesiology style, which tests all the different muscles. And then there's the muscle response testing, which is the type that I did my research on. So yeah, I'll, I will explain all that and the differences and how it can be used and how to use it. And, and you know, show people how to do the swallow test and the sway test and a bunch of other tests in there. It'll be, it'll be, it'll be good. I don't think there's a book out there quite like it. In everything you've you've read and researched, what's in the pipeline for Dr. Ann Jensen? Well, um, HeartSpeak is growing for on all sorts of continents and, and countries. I'm going to be going to, um, to teach in um, in France in October and back in England in November and hopefully uh, in Ireland in February. Um, we're looking at introducing different courses, additional courses. Right now there's HeartSpeak Level 1, HeartSpeak Level 2, the muscle testing, and but there's different courses coming in the pipeline. And it's just a really, really exciting time now for this type of work. It's really being um, embraced. People really are thirsty for it. Outside of chiropractic and muscle testing and kinesiology, was there anything other else in the body you wanted to go and figure out and learn? I have my plate pretty full. Yes, actually, I had something has been on my mind lately. And it's since this full moon that, you know, a lot of people have been reporting to me that they've been really, really upset. And, and even people that I work with that I know that are emotionally quite stable. So, for instance, like, there are things at work we aren't aware of yet. You know, that has been on my mind a lot lately. I want to investigate that. Even though someone's been doing a lot of heart speak, a lot of meditation, a lot of inner work, mindfulness work, and yet they still have these breakdowns, you know? Why does that happen? That really makes me curious as to why that happens. So that's been on my mind. Do you have any research ideas planned in the pipeline that you can tell us? Yes, there's uh, two studies that are, actually three, that are 
been um, developed, designed and developed now. One is on a surrogate muscle testing, which means testing a third person when the patient can't be tested. Maybe the patient is a baby or a child or an animal or an invalid or in a coma or in the womb. Um, so then we test a, a third person's muscle on the, the patient's behalf. That's called surrogate testing. And it's been done extensively out there, but it has never been shown and it's thought to be a bit woo-woo. So that's underway. We also have a study undergoing self-testing, which is also widely used out there. And there was a, a logistical problem with self-testing because in research because I never really got how to blind the patient properly. When I asked them to speak a statement, they would they would know whether or not the t- statement was true or false. But now we've figured that out, and now we're going to do a research study on self-testing. And the other study we're going to conduct is a study using an iPhone app called Sensi. And Sensi can detect stress like the muscle test can detect stress. It can distinguish a true from a false. And it's been shown to do that upwards of similar to the accuracies that muscle testing got, 60-something percent. And we're going to do a study using the Sensi app and the HeartSpeak Light process. So that should be really interesting. So that's, a, that's the most recent things in the pipeline. And if there was one particular piece of knowledge, experience, or something you came across your, your story, what would it be? Trust yourself. Learn to trust yourself, what, however it takes. We, we are more powerful than we can ever imagine. The only limits we have are the limits we impose on ourselves. Fantastic. Amazing. Um, and where can we find you? Well, you can find me at heartspeak.com and dranjensen.com. Also, if anyone is interested in checking out a HeartSpeak course, I'm gonna, as I said, I'm going to be in France in October and Oxford in early November and Dublin in early February. And if any of your listeners want to uh, attend, um, the, for instance, a Dublin course, um, that's February 3rd and 4th, by listening to this, you get a 25% off the course. And by using the promo code SANCIT, S-A-N-C-I-T, um, and you can find the course at, um, it's a bit.ly link, B-I-T dot L-Y backslash HeartSpeak Dublin. That's all lowercase. Bitly, B-I-T dot L-Y backslash HeartSpeak Dublin. And use the promo code SANSIT. Uh, but but there are courses being held all over the world, so just uh, and our schedule is up on the website. Excellent. Uh, I want to say thank you, Dr. Ann Jensen, for coming on to the show and sharing what you guys share. Thank you, Aaron. Thanks for inviting me. It's been great. Thank you for spending the time to listen to the show. If you want to learn more, check out sansit.com. That's S-A-N-C-I-T dot com. Join Sanseat Group on Facebook and contact us if you have any questions. Until next time, have an awesome day and rock on.